This is Straight Talk in the COVID Economy, and my name is Larry Quick. Our world has changed and there's no going back. The COVID economy is now very real. We are adapting to telework, Zooming, online learning and new industries like PanSafe and other opportunities revealed by COVID-19. The challenges are also with us. Bankruptcy, unemployment, debt and confusion. In Straight Talk in the COVID economy, we meet thinkers and innovators who bring insight and information into the opportunities and risks of our rapidly emerging COVID economy. Straight Talk in the COVID Economy is brought to you by Resilient Futures. This is alongside our partner, Impact Africa Network. Impact Africa Network is a non-profit startup studio in Nairobi on a mission to ensure young, talented Africans have a chance at participating in the digital transformation of Africa as creators and owners. If grassroots change is something that excites you, visit www.impactafrica.network. By doing that, you'll be able to support as donors and mentors the Impact Africa Network. Hi, today I'm going to be talking to Michael Bussler. As a pre-note to our discussion, I'd like to say that in this discussion, my main aim was to reveal and listen to Michael's view of America tomorrow. You'll hear him primarily speak of America today and provide a pro-US administration view, that is, in support of President Trump. You'll also hear my view, which is based on my experience from living and working in Australia, the UK and the USA. It is obviously very different to Michael's experience and understanding. You'll also note that I offered a counter view at times, but did not push back on Michael with my point of view. Pushing back wasn't the point of my discussion with Michael. My point was to understand his view so that I and our listeners could hear a fellow human being and an eminent professor who works for the US university system air his views. Now they are different to mine, but it is important that in the true spirit of free speech and friendship, that we listen to qualified people like Michael and not lose sight of the fact that it takes many views to make up our world. Without that, it would be a very uncreative and boring world. With this in mind, please offer your thoughts in a civil and helpful manner. Hi and welcome everyone. Um, I'd like to introduce uh, Michael Bussler today um, to our podcast. Um, we're going to have a... It's eight o'clock. Oops, there's the time signal. Um, we're going to have a very um, vital conversation, I think, given that in Australia, like everywhere in the globe, we're experiencing um, COVID-19, COVID normal, and what we see is the emerging COVID economy. And that is about organisations, particularly business and workers and jobs, um, coming to terms with a new set of rules for business and a new set of rules for work. And that's quite extensive, as we know in prior uh, interviews. Uh, also, um, it's not just us that's in it in Australia. We're obviously in it from a larger picture, particularly with our close ally, uh, United States of America. Now, there is a, a bit of a juxtaposition there for Michael that is we're, we're an Asian country um, with lots of um, uh, Chinese and expatriate Chinese just to the north um, who we share a very close ties with as well as United States of America. And we often say um, when we, um, when we, when America elects a president for themselves, they elect one for us. So over the years, given our close economic ties, um, we um, have close affinity uh, to America and a lot of the social economic 
uh, and political decisions that are made there. Now, I'd also say that we're, a, um, we're almost a clone of America since I was born at least uh, in the 50s when um, we were starting to give our ties after second, the Second World War away from England and moving closer to being, uh, a, in some cases, uh, a duplicate of American society, uh, at, at least a mix. But why I'm really excited to have Michael with us today, a bit of background on Michael before I formally introduce him. He's Professor of Finance at Stockton University. Uh, that's in Pomona, New Jersey. Um, he's been there for 12 years. He's an economist, public policy analyst, writer, and can take complicated economic analysis and present it in easier to understand terms. And wow, isn't that a pleasure? Because we've just had um, many conversations with our economist friends and making it mean something to the average individual can be difficult. Um, so uh, he's a professor of finance with a demonstrated history of working in the higher education industry. Also uh, has a PhD in philosophy, focused primarily in field economics, or the primary, sorry, the primary field in economics, and his secondary uh, specialization is in marketing from Drexel. Now he's also the conference organizer for the World Association for Sustainable Development, and I'm really interested to hear a bit more from Michael on that, um, particularly his work at the William J. Hughes Center for Public Policy at Stockton University. Uh, that um, center serves as a catalyst for research on public policy and economic issues facing southern New Jersey. Um, and I know a bit about southern New Jersey or New Jersey itself, given I lived in Providence for some time in Rhode Island, and we worked on projects out of um, um, uh, the south in southern Connecticut. Uh, and from that um, we, we worked on a project out of Yale, actually, called Southeast, uh, Northeast Corridor Connects, trying to get a connection between the cities from New Jersey all the way up to, hopefully, to Boston, given that the states didn't do too much, um, had, didn't have very good relationships, but um, we were trying to get the cities to connect, given that most of them had shared job sheets, if you like. So um, in um, uh, that work, I got to know a little bit about, about Jersey. So without too much further ado, I welcome Michael to us today and look forward so much to your discussion. Well, thanks for having me, Larry. It's my pleasure to be here. Great. Now, we said what we would do was to um, really split the conversation. And uh, given that a lot of our um, uh, listeners have opinions about uh, the politics uh, that are occurring today. I mean, Australia is it's one of those situations where, where 25 and a half million people have a huge piece of occupying a huge piece of land. The two big influences outside of our Asian influence uh, is primarily the United Kingdom and also America. And our politics are completely different to what's going on in both those places at the moment. But what I'm interested in, or what we've decided we've discussed is, what is a, a Michael's view of America tomorrow? So we know all the stuff that's going on at the moment. What's the American view of tomorrow? The economy, political leadership, equality, and the election, um, just in terms of a, his view in, in the context of America tomorrow. So I'll throw it over to, to you, Michael, in terms of where do you see the American economy tomorrow? 
<clears throat> okay, so uh, we'll start off with the uh, economy, which I think is a real good place to start. Um, this year um, has seen a bunch of radical changes, both in the U.S. and most countries around the world as a uh, result of this uh, virus and the lifestyle changes that we, we've had to, to make. Um, let me just, a uh, little bit of an overview. Um, this year looked like it was going to be uh, the best year from an economic growth standpoint that the U.S. has had in two decades. Uh, January and February started out extremely strong. Uh, we haven't had a 4% annual growth rate uh, since the year 2000. And it looked like, based on January and February, that we may hit that or exceed that. Uh, then, of course, the um, virus hit. So they, the country was shut down almost completely uh, from mid-March until the end of April. Because the shutdown uh, occurred at the end of March, shutting down so much, it pulled the first whole, the whole first quarter down, and we had a negative GDP annualized growth rate of negative 5%. Then um, April, we were completely shut down for the whole month, uh, and that pulled the second quarter down, where we had an uh, annual growth rate drop of over 30%. Uh, so things were looking pretty bad at that point. Now, uh, Congress and the president got together and passed a massive stimulus package totaling nearly $3 trillion. Uh, and that money was uh, essentially for three areas. One, uh, the federal government just mailed money to every, nearly every American that filed a tax return last year. Um, an individual received $1,200, a family of four received $3,400 from the government. That meant when the economy opened up, even though there were people that had been um, unemployed or uh, for, uh, their business had been shut down, uh, they did have uh, money to spend. Uh, the second thing was um, unemployed people, and there were about 22 million people that lost their job as a result of the shutdown. Um, they, the, they receive unemployment compensation from the state in which they live, it's typically only a fraction of what they earn. So part two of the stimulus, the federal government added $600 a week uh, to the unemployment compensation. It turned out uh, more than two thirds of the unemployed people were making more money being unemployed than when they were working. Uh, and that's both a good and a bad thing. Um, and the third part was the um, payroll protection plan where the federal government lent money to all businesses, and they tried to focus mostly on small businesses, uh, and they lent the money to cover their payroll uh, for a three-month period. If they didn't lay anybody off during the three months, the loan turned into a grant, and it didn't have to be repaid. So with all that money going into the economy, beginning on at the end of April, the, the shutdown ended, beginning in May, the economy started on a V-shaped recovery. So what does that mean? The economy went down very steeply and we were concerned, would it hang around at a low point before it started up or would it start back up very quickly? It looks like uh, it started up very quickly. Um, now we don't get growth rates by month, so we have to look for some other data to tell us that. So what we looked at was uh, the number of new jobs created each month. Uh, just to give you a little perspective, 
When the economy is doing well, we're typically adding 200, 300,000 jobs in a month. The most we ever had was 1.6 million jobs in a month, and that was way back during uh, the Reagan administration. So you get some perspective. In the month of May, we added 2.8 million jobs, nearly doubling the previous record. In the month of June, we added 4.6 million jobs, almost doubling the record from May. Uh, then in July, at 1.8 million, and in August, 1.4 million. So uh, again, we don't have any growth numbers, but based on the number of people brought back to work and uh, starting their uh, back to their job, it looks like the recovery is very robust uh, and it will be a V-shaped recovery. Now, the recovery looks like it's starting to flatten a little and Congress and the president are now debating uh, a second stimulus package. The stimulus, as I mentioned, uh, was both a good thing and a bad thing. It was a good thing because it got the economy um, turned around very quickly and started the recovery. It was a bad thing because the federal government budget was already in deficit before this. And we just spent nearly $3 trillion that we don't have. So now the deficit for this year is up to $4 trillion and they're talking about another round of stimulus. Uh, that adds to the public debt and the public debt, which is now above one year's GDP, which usually means that's a very heavy uh, debt. So I'm not sure what's going to end up being passed, uh, but it does look like the economy is recovering. Um, it's flattening a little bit, and we do need um, either another stimulus package, which will be very difficult, or there are six or seven large states um, and I live in New Jersey as one of them, uh, where the governors are very slow to reopen the economy. Um, the other states have reopened. Um, we try to do things as safely as possible. We have had an uptick in the number of cases in the last three or four weeks, mostly due uh, to younger people returning to school at both the elementary and the higher education level. Um, that seems to be what's causing most of the uh, uptick. However, um, the hospitalization rate is down and the fatality rate is down. So although we're getting more cases, they seem to be less severe. We have developed uh, some therapeutics and we're on the verge of uh, having at least one and possibly as many as three vaccines um, approved within the next 30 to um, 45 days. And when that happens, of course, that'll give everybody more confidence and the economy, um, People go, more people go back to work and school and the economy will, will turn around. Uh, so your question was, how do I see things going, going forward? Uh, so we are recovering, uh, which is, is good. The, the question is, um, what kind of damage has this caused and what kind of long-term impacts do we, do we see? So um, when the government shut down, they allowed uh, essential businesses to remain open. Essential businesses were, among other things, uh, uh, grocery stores uh, uh, where people could buy food. Because the large um, retailers like Walmart and Target also sell food, they were allowed to remain open. So because they remained open and the small business people were not 
uh, allowed to open. Walmart ended up picking up a whole lot of uh, business. So the question is going forward, how soon will all these retailers be able to open again? And what will be some of the long-term effects of being shut down for uh, so long? And how will uh, consumers react to that? What consumers learn uh, is that um, they can do a lot of their shopping online. I mean, many people have been using Amazon for a number of years and a lot of other online retailers, but people who didn't do that before started to do that out of necessity. So when things return to normal, whenever that is, um, what kind of a, an effect will that have on consumers uh, buying um, will they continue to buy online and that'll hurt some of these small retailers or will they go back to buying the way that they, um, the way they did before? Okay, that was a pretty long thing. Do you want to ask any questions or I should keep going? <laughs> no, I just okay. wanted to hear that um, because um, we've worked in, um, uh, in the U.S. I haven't worked there for a, a couple of years, but um, in the economic development sort of the community uh, sometimes state level. And I always, you know, being able to contrast having lived for 10 years in the United Kingdom, and obviously I'm Australian, and also have a, a, an, an understanding of Europe and understanding of Asia. That in America, what I always found interesting was that it's sort of like 50 countries in a unified federal government sort of-ish. Um, because the states are so strong uh, in their own way, uh, compared to, say, Australia, where we have a national, um, we, we, we have a lot of things that are nationalised for 25 million people. Um, uh, and that goes to um, uh, some of our police forcing, some of, uh, some of our health, our education, uh, etc. Whereas America is much more uh, fragmented. Uh, and a lot of the rules, state by state, are different. You know, our parliamentary system, for instance, is federal, and there is some differences there. Queensland only has uh, a one house. Most states have um, uh, two houses of parliament, an upper and a lower house. Um, uh, we, we're a, um, uh, still a, um, we're an independent monarchy. Uh, run by Governor General, uh, uh, maybe being a, a republic one day, but it's not critical for most Australians to change it too much. Um, so I look at things uh, as how complex they are at a baseline level. So I, uh, I can go into, a uh, say, a community in America uh, in one place and it's devastating and it's, it's poor, you know, definitely in um, Latino and African-American areas. Uh, and then I can go not too far away. We live in Providence and you could walk between very rich, or even rich, middle class and very poor in a matter of 20 minutes. And uh, I always found that it was, um, uh, that there was a, a layer of um, uh, of reporting of the economy with um, federal GDP, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, uh, and goes to our point on 
um, explaining things to people when they're up here at a federal level in such a complex malaise of states and local councils and local schools and all of that stuff, down here it's operating differently. And I call it sort of a, 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 a systemic challenge because you know, when we're working in economic development, some of the things you couldn't do because of the local localization and the decisions that are made locally, which are very political. And then the state and then the federal, you know, trying to get something to happen between Connecticut and Massachusetts at state level was almost impossible. When you had one community or met several communities that, you know, were basically across from each other. And that goes for many places. And I've always found that systemically um, for to do on the ground economic development, creating jobs, creating livable communities, all of those sorts of things was very, very hard because there was not a cohesive overarching narrative even for, for, um, um, for America to have for itself. Sure, you know, it can have this, you know, we don't do that in Australia. You know, the flag sort of important, but not as important as it is in America. Um, and I'm talking about in terms of the way it's portrayed. Um, so it's just different that we we are able to not have the amount of local problems that can happen in many American places. And I wonder, because one of the things that's actually talked about is the current administration is uh, brought on by the systemic problems that America has had, particularly since the Second World War. Huge growth spurt. And, you know, when I was... 10 and 15, I worked in a bank and the currency, if you were traveling, you took the pound sterling, you know, now it's the American dollar and America did not have the footprint around the world in the 60s. And I lived in England from 1969 to 1980 and uh, watched England sort of um, lose its position as a global uh, force, if you like. But I'm just looking at America as a global force that so many countries rely on in different ways, you know, mainly, well, economically, culturally, what would you do with that American TV programs? Um, um, and also uh, military, militarily, the politics that they're able to pull together and try and um, keep some sort of sanity in certain countries, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and uh, so I, I, the way we look at it is America seems, it, from our perspective, Resilient Futures, it's systemically broken in so many ways because you, you can't get things to happen because of rules and regulations and these microcosms, you know, and, uh, you know, economic development is difficult, state, place-based, etc. It's very difficult to actually work on the ground. And the overarching we're doing okay doesn't make sense to the people who are actually in those communities that need to be activated uh, if the overall economy is going to work. So, you know, I, I always used to look at the job figures and say, well, it's not about the numbers. It's about the quality of the work. And can you earn enough money to actually, you know, have job security, buy a home, you know, bring kids up without having four jobs, 
all of those sorts of things, have some sort of upward mobility, wealth creation, and leave a legacy. You know, I, I see America divided today based on those lines, those lines that people sort of are up here and the people that are down here. I don't know, that's a, a sort of a view economically, if you like, and it sort of speaks to the politics of today. Yeah, so uh, you said a lot there, Larry. Let me uh, make a few comments. So um, we are the United States of America. And when we were the uh, founders of the country set it up, they recognized that states uh, have different needs and uh, different strengths than other states. So the federal government sets up a general set of rules that everybody has to play by. Uh, and each state uh, is allowed to uh, govern their state the way their people see best to do it. And there are vast differences between the states in terms of economic policy, social policy, um, et cetera. Um, we tend to view that as kind of a, a strength. However, uh, let me say, um, you, you mentioned we're uh, divided in the U.S., Politically, we're extremely divided. Uh, we're a little over a month away from a presidential election, and the country is very divided uh, as to which way things will, will go. Um, the, the current administration took the view uh, when the virus hit uh, that states were different. Uh, and in some states, they had a very severe problem, like New York, New Jersey, California. They had very severe problems. Other states in the Midwest really had very little uh, coronavirus issues, very little cases and extremely low fatalities. So the current administration said, look, we're not going to put an overall national policy because we can't get one that will fit everybody. Uh, so uh, they let each state determine um, what they should do. Now, there was a national lockdown where everybody had to shut down, but in terms of coming back, each state could make their own decisions about what to do. And some said, look, we don't have much of a problem. We're going to open up fairly quickly. States like New York and New Jersey, Illinois, Michigan, California, they said, look, we have a much more severe problem. We're going to have to open up much, much more uh, slowly. Now, uh, the, the opponent to President Trump thinks that was the wrong thing to do. He thinks from the beginning, we should have had a national policy that dictated uh, everybody has to wear masks or everybody has to social distance uh, or everybody has to stay uh, shut down for some time. Uh, and there's the uh, debate goes on between those. Um, as a matter of fact, tonight is the first debate between the two uh, candidates. And that's one topic that that they're uh, going to bring, bring up. Uh, Vice President Biden, who's running against President Trump, um, will criticize President Trump for not acting um, more, uh, quicker and uh, without putting in a national policy. His view is that we now have over 200,000 people that have died from this virus. And he said, had the president been um, a little more uh, presidential and taken more of a national view that that number could have been held down. Uh, President Trump is going to uh, counter to that, saying, look, uh, the number could have been in the millions of deaths. We kept it as low as we could. If we shut the economy any longer, we would likely go into a severe recession and maybe worse. And the uh, health uh, implications of that 
um, could be worse than what we see from the, the virus. There's a couple studies came out uh, uh, saying that uh, over 50% of the adults are now feeling some anxiety. Um, some are feeling a lot of depression uh, because the uh, economy was shut down most of the medical facilities, non-emergency, were shut down. So people who would get treatment for some ailment couldn't get it, and that may cause more problems into the long term. So we'll let those two guys debate that and uh, see, see where they um, come up. So uh, because we have this government where each state really can set their own uh, policies, uh, it does create some issues, as you've uh, mentioned, but we believe it creates more freedom. And in the long run, the belief is that that will be more beneficial. Um, another debate that's going on, you mentioned some of the things that Australia has. Um, as you probably know, the US is the only industrialized country in the world that does not have some kind of a national health insurance uh, plan. Uh, President Biden, uh, Vice President Biden will uh, on the, I don't know if he'll do it today, but on the, in the debates, he'll argue that America needs that. Uh, President Trump will argue there's a really a better way to go than a government-run system. Uh, and so far, uh, we haven't had a government-run system. The problem with healthcare, if I can just go on that for a minute, um, the, the major change we had was in 2010 when they passed uh, the Affordable Care Act. Uh, at the time, about 85% of the population had health insurance, and they were mostly pleased with what they had. They didn't like how much it cost and how much the price kept going up, but they were generally pleased with the quality of the care. So they passed the um, Affordable Care Act, which uh, really uh, uh, had an effect on the entire uh, health care system. Um, it did... Um, provide health insurance to additional 6% of the population, about 20 million uh, people. So we still have about 9% of the population uninsured. And there are many people, the American public is kind of split on whether that was a good idea or a bad idea. President Trump tried to come up with a replacement uh, right after he got into office. He did get it passed by the House of Representatives. It needed to get passed by the Senate. Uh, it came one vote short. Uh, so he didn't get anything through, and he's going to. And he says he'll work on on something else. Um, so um, politically, what's going to happen going forward uh, depends a lot on what happens in this election, because the candidates uh, each have uh, vastly different views. Uh, President Trump will argue that uh, when he got into office, he created a very good, strong economy. Uh, he says it's the best ever. I'm not quite sure it's that strong, but uh, we had a, a, a strong economy. The unemployment rate, uh, which most economists would tell you a full employment rate is when you get unemployment down to around 5%. Uh, we managed to get it under 5%. President Trump got it down to 3.5%. And they had record low unemployment uh, nationally, and for certain demographics, particularly minorities, African-Americans, uh, Asians, Hispanics, the unemployment rate for them was at um, historic lows. So President Trump would, would argue that the government should have less of a role, so reduce regulations, which he did right after he got into office, 
keep tax rates as low as possible so people get to keep as much of what they earn as they can. So they passed a, a massive tax cut in 2018 um, and let the uh, freedom of the market work and it'll work well. Vice President Biden, on the other hand, has a much different view. Uh, he takes a look at, uh, as you mentioned, there's a big difference between those at the top and those at the bottom. The income in inequality uh, has been getting worse. It actually improved a little bit. Uh, that is, it was reduced a little bit during Trump's administration, but uh, the first three years. But Pre uh, Vice President Biden says it's not being uh, reduced enough and the people at the bottom don't have enough opportunity and the people at the top are just making a lot of money and control a large amount of, of wealth. I think the top 1% of income earners control about 40% of the wealth in the country. President, uh, Vice President Obama, uh, Biden rather says that's not fair and we need to do something to make that a little fairer so the people at the bottom have a chance to really succeed. Um, to do that, he says, um, we have to give the people at the bottom um, the means to uh, have a chance to uh, move up the social and economic ladder. And the way we do that is to make sure, one, that they're healthy. So he favors an expansion of the current Affordable Care Act. So it covers 100% of the population. Um, he says, a lot of uh, lower income people can't afford to go to college and that puts them at a disadvantage. So another proposal is for him to make uh, colleges tuition free uh, so that anybody who's able um, will be, can go to college uh, and not have to worry about uh, money. Um, and he's looking at a number of other uh, social programs designed to help people at the bottom. Now to pay for all that, uh, of course, if the government's going to pay for tuition and healthcare, et, et cetera, uh, they're going to have to have the money to do that. And of course, the government doesn't really have money. All they have is what they take in the form of taxes from people that earn it. So in order to pay for this, uh, he says he's going to raise taxes on the upper income earners who uh, President, uh, Vice President Biden says have not been paying their fair share and they should pay their fair share. And if they do pay their uh, fair share, they'll be able to use those funds to help some of the people at the uh, bottom. Now, President Trump will argue back that if you um, continue to raise taxes on the upper class, it reduces capital formation. Uh, in other words, the uh, wealthy, there, there are essentially three things you do with your income. First thing you do before you even get it is to pay taxes. Whatever left over, we call this uh, disposable income, and you either spend that or save it and invest it. Uh, wealthy people, they pay whatever their taxes are, spend on what they're going to spend on their lifestyle, and they have a lot left over to uh, save and invest, and that's where most of the investment capital comes from. The rest comes from corporations. So President Trump would, would argue if you raise taxes on the wealthy, they're still gonna maintain their lifestyle, so they'll still consume as much, but they'll have less money to invest in the economy. That will reduce capital formation. We have a very capital intensive economy today, and if you reduce capital formation, you're gonna tend to stagnate the economy. Uh, so President Trump says, by raising taxes on anybody and by increasing those uh, income transfer programs, um, it will slow down economic growth, 
because capital won't be formed. It will also slow down growth, uh, Trump argues, because it will reduce incentives for people to go out and produce more. Why is that? Well, the wealthy, if you raise their taxes, um, and he's talking perhaps a tax rate of 50% or uh, even higher, well, the wealthy are going to say, why should I go out and earn any more or more than half of what I earn is going to go to the government. So it tends to reduce uh, incentives for them to uh, produce more. On the lower end, the president would argue, if you give people something for free, they have no incentive to go out and earn it on their own. So as a result, you're going to reduce their incentive also, and that tends to slow economic growth. Now, Vice President uh, uh, Biden does not agree with that. He thinks that uh, the wealthy, even if you raise their taxes somewhat, there's still enough for them to create capital for expansion. And he argues that if you give uh, the people at the lower end uh, health care and uh, education, uh, that won't destroy incentives. He'll argue that will give them more of an incentive because now they know they're healthy um, and now they're well-educated and they'll be able to go out into the workforce and say, now I can look for a good job because I have uh, all these things. So what happens going forward depends a lot on what happens in this uh, election that's about a month away. Well, um, another view, and I, I think this is the view that we have in some shape or form in Australia. Uh, we have a, a, a thing that has been part of the culture, even though we're not a traditional um, English culture anymore. We, we're very multicultural. We have people, you know, our, our growth has been through immigration. Um, and also we've got a lot of natural minerals and mining. We've got agriculture. Um, and uh, anything else that we've got really has come off the back of that. You know, there may be a few things. We're primarily a service <coughs> economy. Uh, we don't have necessarily many, apart from mining, uh, large international, we don't own large international companies. Uh, so we rely on foreign investment to come into Australia. But the one thing we've always had in Australia, which I think if you ask any Australian, would you want to take it away, is what we call a fair go. And when we sort of, in a, from an Australian perspective, resume futures, analyse what that means, it's the circular flow of capital. That if you're not, if, if there's certain people holding the money and investing it, they expect a, a rate of return on that money. And that money, as it goes into the system and flows, um, uh, has to produce that rate of return, which is understandable uh, in a capitalist society. Um, so what, what Australia has is, in, in understanding a fair go, is to say that, yeah, you can, you can do that, but there has to be enough money in the system for it to work. If it's, if it's bound up in small amounts of uh, money, a, a small amount of people, then you're not getting a, a true circular flow that allows, you know, it's, it's a bit like cutting off, you know, if one part of the body's got all of the blood, uh, then, you know, you're not going to have a fully functioning body. So there's that sort of idea of a fair go. And, you know, I've always been astonished at the, um, we have a minimum wage here and we have regulations that uh, regulate how uh, that works. 
in different areas. Um, uh, there's, it's worked pretty well for a long time, particularly, you know, we arrive at a point in Australia where we, apart now, we've relied on mining and uh, agriculture and education, as the case of which state I live in, overseas students. You know, we're only a small country, 25 million people. And we call ourselves, we, you have to explain, you have to describe ourselves as social democracy. So, you know, that, that, that you know, for me, it's like, I'm a capitalist, you know, I'm a social capitalist, if you like, because my understanding is that all the people around the place don't have enough money to spend and to get uh, upward mobility, create their own wealth. I'm not going to be able to get anything. So if you bind it all up into, you know, the small percentage of people that own so much of the wealth uh, and the relationships they have with each other to keep that wealth, you're not getting it distributed through um, 25 million people in Australia. And there's certain things that we say are critical. It's like health for everyone, you know, universal health care for us is like, you try and take that away from our people. And does the government do a great job? Yeah, it does an okay job. But you give it to the market and the market is going to want something else out of it that, that you know, may be worse than what the government can provide. But you can have a choice. I've got private health cover and I go to private, um, uh, I get private, you know, I had cancer, leukemia, get private wealth, uh, private cover. We have um, uh, a whole range of things that we don't want the market to take over because it works well for us knowing that a fair go for everyone. Everyone's got to be able to look after themselves, preferably, you know, their house and homes, et cetera, and all those sorts of things. So I, I wonder, you know, that particular theory, uh, will that stack up? Because if that's been the theory for a long time, and look what it's producing, this division, you know, um, uh, what, uh, you know, what, um, what is tomorrow for America? If all of a sudden people are out there going, I just don't have enough and we don't have uh, a, a living wage that people can have. I mean, we worked it out that, at least in Providence, if you weren't earning 50,000 US a year, perhaps for 60, you couldn't bring your kids up. You couldn't have a home that was secure. You couldn't do a whole bunch of things, which adds a cost, a social cost, but to the economy. So, you know, I mean, I think those theories may, may be working at a global sort of economic level, but do they really work when it comes down to the people on the, who are actually living in the country? Well, uh, you had a whole lot there. Let me, let me start off with this. Um, the U.S., looking at the big picture, the U.S. went from the birth of a nation to the largest, most prosperous economy in the world in about 150 years. Other countries were hundreds, in some cases, thousands of years older. How did that happen? In my view, there were four basic principles that allowed that to, to happen. One, we encouraged individual freedom. As long as you didn't infringe upon anybody else's rights, you were essentially free to do whatever you wanted. Secondly, and here's where the difference is. Secondly, we encourage individual responsibility. So people learn to take care of themselves where possible. Obviously, if you have a disability or something, you can't do that. But if you're physically and mentally able to take care of your, yourself, the government didn't take care of you. You had to take care of yourself. Thirdly, uh, we had low rates of taxation. 
That meant whenever you earned anything, you knew most of what you were going to earn is going to end up in your pocket. So there was plenty of incentive for people to try to produce as much as they could. And fourthly, we had a limited role for government. Um, we had a very narrow definition of public goods, uh, defense of the country, a legal system. Um, so we had a very narrow definition for public goods and uh, the government essentially stayed out of the way. So with those four principles, we, uh, individual freedom, individual responsibility, low rates of taxation, and a limited role for government, we were able to grow rapidly. Um, and uh, although, as you point out, there is some divisions today and a bunch of problems that need to be solved, um, we've achieved, I think, some very great things uh, in terms of how big we've gotten, uh, in terms of what we refer to, and I don't mean to brag, but what we refer to as American exceptionalism. Uh, we've taken, we've used our, our wealth uh, really to help the, the world. We're not trying to conquer any countries. And if any country gets uh, attacked by another country, the U.S. is always there to, to uh, help. So um, one problem we have is that, uh, wait, more than one problem, but one serious problem is that uh, income inequality. Um, now, we would say, the current administration would say, the way to solve that, there's only 1% of the population has 40% of the, the wealth. It, it's not a zero-sum game. In other words, they don't have wealth because they took it away from somebody else. They have wealth because they've earned it. So what the current administration's view was to solve the problem, and in the last three years, the income inequality has improved and the poverty rate has gone down. So they would argue it's a success. Now, Biden's going to have a different view of that. But um, the president, the current administration would argue Look, instead of giving people free things, free health care, uh, free food stamps, free welfare, free housing, free college education, instead of giving that to people, and what we found is most people really don't want that free stuff. They take it because they don't have any other choice. But what the current administration said is, we're going to give you the opportunity to earn enough income so you can buy these things for yourself and not rely on the government to give them uh, to you. So in the first three years of the current administration, the unemployment rate, as I mentioned, was rock bottom, 3.5%. That's a nearly impossible rate to, to hit. So virtually anybody who wanted a job was able to find one. And the minorities had also not quite down to 3.5%, but they were at historical lows too. So now they're earning their own income. We have less people who need food stamps, less people that need welfare, less people that need housing assistance. And the current administration's view is uh, that if we continue to grow the economy, uh, as John Kennedy said very famously back in the 60s, a rising tide will lift all boats. So if we get the economy going, um, there'll be opportunity for everyone. Now, individuals have responsibility. Just because the economy's growing, someone's not just gonna hand you a good paying job. In our system, at least in theory, you're paid according to the value of your contribution. So if you wanna earn more income to be able to buy the things you want, you have to figure out how to make a bigger contribution to the system. That's why people go to uh, college. That's why people go to trade schools to learn a, a trade because they want to be able to make larger contributions to the system 
Therefore, they'll get uh, paid more and they'll be able to buy some of these things um, on, on their own. So um, there's a stark difference between Trump and, and Biden on these issues. Biden would take more of a view like you have in Australia. Uh, there is a social responsibility uh, and Americans are compassionate, he would argue, and compassionate people want to make sure those at the lower end are taken care of. Uh, and people, Biden would argue, don't mind paying a little more in, in taxes if they can share, share the uh, wealth. Uh, and again, Trump's position would be different to, to that. Um, if we have income inequality, uh, you don't want to take away from the people that earned it and are at the top, rather give opportunity to people at the bottom to earn enough income to raise them up, and that will close the uh, income inequality uh, gap. So there's a philosophical difference between uh, the, the two. We try to stay away, uh, I'm not sure this is an accurate statement, I think we try to stay away from uh, some of the more social Social, uh, social capitalism, I think the term is social democracy, we tend to favor more of an, I think, and again, I'm not sure until I see what happens with the election, but I think um, we tend to favor more of that individual responsibility and giving people individual opportunity to earn themselves and not have to rely on the government. Um, we feel that that tends to be uh, what's best for society as a whole. And if there are some people left behind for whatever reason, maybe there's an obligation, there is an obligation to help them to get in a position to climb out, not to give them things to try to get them out, but rather get them in a position where they can climb out uh, on their own. I always tell a story about um, uh, there's a fisherman catching a lot of fish and there's a real hungry person there. Uh, so what do you do? Well, Joe Biden's position would be, look, that guy caught more fish than he needs, more for him and his family. Why doesn't he just give some of it to somebody who's, who's hungry? Trump would argue that creates two problems. One, the fisher person, not to be sexist, the fisher person has to catch enough fish for himself and his family, plus enough fish for the other person. That's one problem. Second problem is, the hungry person now becomes dependent on the fisher person to, uh, for food. So it creates two problems. President Trump's view would be give the, the hungry person a fishing rod, teach him how to fish, let him catch his own fish, then you don't have any long-term problems. So that's kind of the difference in the views. Now, Biden would argue back, yeah, if you give him a rod, teach him to fish, while he's learning all that, he's going to starve to death. <laughs> so that's not a, uh, such a good idea. And sort of that's where the, um, where the debate is. That's a, an interesting spot. So um, if we take um, America, I'd love to have it continue this conversation in some way, because looking at the two different countries, I think is going to be an interesting view over the next few years. Um, yes. But if we were to take, um, uh, you know, I mean, my love affair is a love affair. Uh, when I was old enough to understand countries, when our home country as such, um, a long, long way back was England, the United Kingdom. I loved America. Everyone wanted to go back to England and see there. I wanted to go to America. I had a, I had a, a map of uh, America on my wall from as long, young as I can remember. And I knew where every state was and everything like this. 
And I, 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 as it happened, it was cheap to get to England. Then I was going to try and get to America, and I ended up staying in America from the age of 19 to 30. And But, you know, I've been back there and lived there on and off for eight years or so and worked there. And uh, it was a sort of a, a bit of a shock as to what I found in a more mature setting. For me, um, it wasn't the uh, America that I thought it was and that it spoke of, you know, and it may be just in my mind, because you know what it's like if you've got a hero, you, you can do no wrongs uh, uh, until you actually to go and live for a while, live with this and for a while. So I've got a bit of a mixed view. I know I love my America. There's bits of it that I don't have much time for. Um, but I, my final question is for this, this American exception, I mean, there's part of me as a world citizen going, oh, come on, guys. You know, America has done some fabulous things. Like, I can't believe the music, you know, the cultural stuff that's come out. The, um, the, the technology, Silicon Valley, and I spent time in Silicon Valley with friends there, you know, and the vibe that's there, and, you know, New Orleans to Chicago and all of that. You know, New York City, well, I, you know, I've lived in London and spent a lot of time in New York City and well, in San Francisco. So there's this sort of my America love affair that's going on. I feel a bit like my um, uh, family's arguing and I'm not too sure um, if they're going to, how they're going to get through this argument. And there's just been this rapid growth that you talked about. But I'll come back to a, a last and final question. I want two questions. You, being involved with the World Association for Sustainable Development, given the, the acrimony that I hear at the political level, I mean, I, I just think of, you know, John McCain versus McConnell. You know, that John McCain, to me, he was a Republican and he had his views on things. Um, uh, but something happened and you've got a McConnell who I just don't quite get. Uh, if, if you look at John McCain as a, a real GOP, you know, and you've got this change and then you've got the anti, the... Um, the rising of the Democrats due to the, their perception of the rising of the Republicans. This is all happening. Yep. My question comes back is how sustainable is America? Because we've seen great powers fail before. You know, that's the general course of history. How sustainable is America given the current cluster F that it's experiencing at the moment? That's a very good question. It's going to be difficult to answer. Again, I think a lot depends on what happens in this um, election. Uh, each side will argue uh, to really be sustainable. Um, there's certain actions that you have to take and each would say that they're, they're different actions. The current administration would lean more toward uh, a free market view of things. Um, John McCain was uh, what we refer to as a moderate Republican, uh, whereas uh, McConnell is more to the, the right. Uh, he's a very conservative Republican. Um, and part of the problem, or maybe much of the problem we have politically today is for whatever reason, each side seems to be uh, staying away from the center. So the uh, Democratic Party wants to become very liberal and the Republican Party wants to come, become very conservative. Uh, history indicates when we're in the middle, 
and we're sort of leaning a little to the right of center or a little to the left of center, we tend to make the, the most progress. By looking at these far extremes, <clears throat> it's very difficult to come together to, <clears throat> excuse me, to make progress. <clears throat> and that's probably going to uh, slow down um, economic growth and maybe have negative effects on sustainability. Let me also say, Larry, I, I am an eternal optimist. Uh, and I think that no matter what the problems are that the U.S. has, uh, some way and somehow we're going to come together and figure out uh, how to solve them. Uh, that's been, I think, the pattern of the U.S. in the, the past. No matter how severe the problem, uh, we seem to be able to come together. Now, we're not doing that real well now, but <laughs> when it gets uh, very severe, uh, we seem to be able to come together for a uh, common good when we realize that um, really we're all Americans uh, here uh, and we should all have the same basic uh, goals. And as I've examined them, the goals, I think, are not quite as basic as I thought they were. Uh, and there are some differences there. But um, I believe however this shakes out after the virus and once the economy gets back and once the political situation is resolved, um, I think America will be able to move forward to continue to grow and, and prosper and be the uh, a uh, good world neighbor that we've been and our ability to help people uh, who are really downtrodden around the world uh, is very important. Let me just put a little plug in for my World, Sustain world Association for Sustainable Development. So what the purpose of the organization is, uh, we take a look at um, less than developed and underdeveloped countries and we concluded the, the difference between an underdeveloped country and a developed country is essentially knowledge. Uh, the developed country knows things the other countries don't know. That's so right. the purpose of the organization is to bring together academics from all over the world. So we bring them from industrialized countries and we, we have programs that even if they can't afford it, we bring people mostly from African uh, nations and we try to impart that knowledge uh, onto them so they can take it back into uh, their societies implement that knowledge and uh, enable them to grow. It's about a 20-year-old organization. Uh, we continue to uh, expand, and we're doing the best we can to try to help the less than developed countries. And um, am I going to be making an unfriend if I say, I think William J. Hughes was a Democrat? He was a Democrat. Yeah, and that that's pretty marvelous that you know, that was back in the days when Republicans and Democrats had different views, but were able to engage in healthy debate. Absolutely. And in, our, in our democracy, it's actually a constitutional republic, but in our democracy, healthy debate is very, very important. And we've lost that healthy debate, and that's helping to uh, create many of the problems we have today. Totally agree. I, I can remember talking to my Republican and Democrat friends in America and asking them uh, before the last election, what do you think about the candidates? And it was like both candidates didn't rate very highly. And I asked myself, the same people these days, and they go, both candidates still didn't rate very highly. But the, um, the, I, I think the big takeaway uh, for me is your commitment to sustainable development. I'd like to talk more about that again. And also just a tip so that I know uh, where to put my money. Who's going to win the election? 
uh, the polls are favoring uh, Joe Biden, and they have uh, really since they were started to be taken in July. Um, I, I think President Trump is going to win, though. Um, I think when people get into the voting booth, as much as they don't like President Trump personally, and there's a lot about him not to like personally, I think when people get in there, they're going to say, which policies are best for me and my family? And I think they're going to conclude that President Trump's policies, which have done extremely well up until this virus, I think they're going to say his policies tend to fit a little better and um, that's who we're going to vote for. Now, that's a minority view, I want to say, because most people will tell you they think uh, Joe Biden will, will win. Um, maybe when we talk again of the first debate, as I mentioned, is tonight uh, in a couple hours. I know you're in the morning over there. We're still in the evening. Um, we'll see what happens after the uh, first debate. But I, I, I believe that when it gets down to election time, President Trump will be reelected. And just quickly, the Senate? I think they'll hold on to the Senate. Um, I, I don't think they'll be able to get control of the, the House, and that's a problem too, because the Democrats and the House of Representatives really do not like President Trump at all. And if he uh, really just looks in the wrong direction, they'll impeach him again. Uh, and that's gonna be uh, counterproductive to moving the country forward. So we'll have to see what happens with that. Now, I just wanna close on this point. Uh, if you go to ratemyprofessor.com, Michael rates four out of five, 75% would take his course again. And it said, uh, this one statement, Professor Busler is so knowledgeable, and that's so knowledgeable, and has a real knack for being able to analyze and support both sides of an argument. And it says, I had him for a bit my business ethics class. Michael, I want to thank you so much, mate. And um, I'm really hoping we can talk again. Me too, Larry. I really enjoyed this. I look forward to doing it again. Thanks, Mike. We hope you've enjoyed this Straight Talk in the COVID Economy podcast. Thank you for listening. And please subscribe on your preferred podcast platform. For more free content that will enhance your understanding of this new COVID economy and the actions that you can take to leverage disruptive change, join the Resilient Futures Network at www.resilientfutures.com slash get started. And please support our partner, Impact Africa Network, at www.impactafrica.network. We need all the support we can to help them build their own incubator. We know that there are many other great podcasts out there, and your time is precious, and you chose to listen to this great talk in the COVID economy. And we appreciate that. Thank you.